your hand on the Bible or raise your right hand and swear that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I got to do that. But I was thinking about that, and I won't go into why I was there. But it wasn't my fault. Uh, I, I sat there, and I, and I see that, and I watch that, and I did it, and I kind of thought about it even as I was doing it. And then, then I see others doing TV, and people still continue and swearing the president and all that kind of stuff. And, and I thought about that for a second. Isn't that interesting that somehow by that action, we assume they're going to tell the truth? And yet I'm told we live in, in, in a culture nowadays that they almost call post-Christian. That the majority of people today don't really even believe in God or the scriptures or what is taught in the Bible. And yet here we are swearing upon this oath, making this oath. I read another good quote. An ancient writer once said, It is not the oath that makes us believe the man, but the man the oath. You see, when it comes to promises, the results truly lie in what? In the person making the promise. In other words, the words are only as good as the person who gives them. Just ask yourself, how much weight do we give to the words or the promises of politicians these days? Or how about that two-year-old child that walks up to you and says, Daddy, I promise I won't do that again. And we're thinking, yeah, right. Or even that time period that I had a little more problems with my eldest son. And he'd come to me and he would promise again. And I would sit there in frustration and i say, you know what? I'd tell him, I don't want to hear any more promises. I don't want to hear them. I want to see it. I want to know, I want to see a track record. I want to see some proof that you actually believe what you're saying. So don't promise me anymore. Just don't do it. Just show me. Because we get frustrated with all the broken promises. So I thought, so what about God's promises? I'm told the scriptures, never mind I'm told, I've read it, are full of promises. As we were praying here this morning, some of you were alluding to the promises of God, and you hung on to them in a sense as you prayed to God saying, okay, I'm counting on this. So what about the promises of God, those words? I want to share with you one of the most prevalent, the most frequent promise given in all of Scripture. In fact, it, it's... In the very opening scenes with Adam and Eve in the Garden of, uh, of Eden, we, we see this promise being fulfilled in God walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden. God was fulfilling a promise that He was going to make to them and continue to make for all of us. And that was the promise from God simply stating, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now think about that because... I think we forget how essential and how important this promise is. If we were to ever fully understand God and life and the world and how they all connect, we have to grasp this promise. One of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture, very much closely related to this promise. It's something along the lines of, fear not, or be strong and courageous. Or, do not be terrified. Why? Following almost all of those commands is, because the Lord your God is 
with you. Joshua 1.9, do not be terrified, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go, Joshua. See, throughout the Bible, you can't help but recognize, in a sense, these post-it notes everywhere reminding humanity of this absolutely incredible promise. God gave Israel in the Old Testament the tabernacle. He gave them the Ark of the Covenant, which they're still looking for, by the way. Uh, the temple and the pillar of, of cl- the cloud and the pillar of fire at night. They, they were all kind of like post-it notes or reminders from God to humanity. Hey, by the way, I'm here. I'm with you. When God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, came in that redemptive way to earth. Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was there. Even to the end of the age, Jesus said, I'm leaving for a while, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit, third person in the Trinity, and he is going to be with you even to the end of age. It was a promise that was to comfort us even in the most brutal and horrific of times. You know, I did uh, Faye Daniels' brother's funeral this week, and she called me up and asked, and I, I didn't know, Gary, but, but I stepped in, and, and she wanted to read, again, the verse that we always allude to, Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will not let fear Grip me. I will not be terrified. I will even be courageous in light. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. It's the premise of everything that we know or to know about God. You know, I shared at the funeral. I'll quickly share again. I wear this wristband. Psalm 23, 4 was right on there. And then there's a name of a girl, Jillian. A 16-year-old girl in our church at Brentview Baptist who suddenly out of the blue had a sore leg. It turned into a a scan that turned into cancer that turned into a 30% chance of living. Just like that. Life turned upside down. We all know what that's like. We've all encountered something along that lines. And then you begin to see, and I was with her grandparents just last night, and and the courage and the strength and the faith and the hope and and the trust still in a God that that, that possibly there's a healing. But even if there isn't, just to face all that is going to come our way on this earth. In light of such bleak possibilities, and sometimes we sit back, how do you, man, how do you do that? How do you face it? How do you, well, it comes back to what? Who made the promise? What's his resume, God's resume for us to trust him when he said to Joshua or to you or to me that I'm still going to be there? And so I look at a God who claims to be self-existent, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Bible says absolutely sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Or is God himself. States in Exodus 19 or 9.14, there is no one like me in all the earth. That's a pretty good resume. Who, would else, who else would you want to make a pinky promise with? And with a resume like that. So with this track record that we're given in the scriptures, I think to myself, don't you think then that his words, his promises should carry just a little more weight with us? Are my fears being relinquished? Or do they just remain this constant battle? And if they do, what what is that saying 
about my belief in the person making the promise. You know, even just this week, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a huge job. Ah, it's going well. First one, I'm doing totally on my own. And all of a sudden, something happens one day. You ever get those moments? You probably all have. I know for a fact, especially in a car accident. That's when suddenly you literally feel physically sick. You just can't believe that happened. And you, you just, oh. And I remember sitting there getting this news on the job site of the potential issues that could arise. And I, I can't even work. I, I got to go home. Home's a good place to go. I go home. Carol says, you want to eat? I don't want to eat. I just want to mope. I will feel sorry for myself. I'm sitting there. I'm feeling physically sick. And so I go to the emails. And, and, and it's just, again, I, I love how God just tries to do these things once in a while. And my daughter decided to post a verse on Facebook. It was a promise from God for me, for you. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. See, I was, I was really feeling dismayed at that moment. And you know how that goes in your head and the fear just rolls and roller coasters and gets bigger and you can't sleep at night and it just gets worse and you become and you create this fictitious world and fantasize all about the bad things that are going to happen and how terrible it's going to go and it just continues. I was dismayed and it happens so quickly. He says, do not be dismayed. Why? For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will help you. I will hold you in my righteous right hand. I read it. I've seen that before. I read it again. And I read it again. And I read it again. And I let it sink. Is this true? I go downstairs, finally. <laughs> My wife, I know, has been volunteering that day for Samaritan's Purse in High River. I go downstairs. I didn't really care what she was encountering in High River that day because it was about my world, not hers. And I'm in my misery, and I go downstairs, and she just starts to talk about the war zone. We drove there yesterday, the war zone. The eight-foot pile highs of everyone's belongings just thrown out into the yard trashed suddenly my issue didn't look quite as bad then I looked at my wristband sitting at the table my goodness she's at a 30% chance to live she's 16 and suddenly my problem shrunk a little again no, I'm not minimizing the small pains that we have they still hurt they're still frustrated they still could happen but is God in control is he still really going to be with me even if it doesn't go my way? What does that say about the biblical character of Job? In light of all that we are told that he encountered, lost not just of everything he owned, and he was very, very, very wealthy, all his property, but all ten of his children, his wife turning on him, sickness and health and everything taken from him. And what does he say in Job 13, 15? Though he, and he's talking about God, though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. Wow, we read that fast, but do we realize 
the faith behind those words? Do we realize the belief that this man has in his God to say that? Here's the real mind bender. This one really gets me. I've even struggled with people once in a while because they didn't really believe me. I said, well, as I read it, I'm going, this happened to Job not because of what he did wrong, but because of what he did right. Had nothing to do with what he was doing or paying the price or the consequence of some poor decisions. No, 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 no. We read what does God in, in, the, in the counsel of others and in front of Satan say? Here's God. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? In other words, I am so proud of this guy. I am so proud of his faith. You see that, Satan? And then the trials begin. And then he allows these things to happen in his life. And I'm looking at that. And again, in light of the horrific results, and, and Job's left in the dark. Job, they believe, is the first book written in the Bible. He doesn't have scriptures to turn to and the faith of others to rely on. No, no, no. He's, he's relying on what he knows about his God. The relationship that he has developed over his years. That's all he's got. And he's standing there, and this is happening all around him, and it's happening to him, and he's all there. And we read again in Job 1, 20 to 22, then Job arose. Of course he's grieving. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. That's what they did. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. Worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. My goodness. I've had people pray that the, the lights on traffic kept turning red. God was against them. The second things don't go our way, we start, oh, God, what's wrong? What did you know? And I'm going, really? See, my guess, Job, he knew his God. He knew his God. He knew where his God was. He knew that his God was with him and not against him. Even though everything around him didn't indicate that. See, this incredible premise and promise that God is with us. Everything in life has to rest on that. Every decision that you and I ever make, ever any trial that we ever have to walk through, any joy that we experience, every circumstance that presents itself before us, has to be filtered through that promise. That he's with us, not against us. I am with you. Because if we miss out on this, as I see so often in people's lives, we miss out. You know, when this happened to Jillian in our church, I, I do not know how I would respond as a father if it happened to my kid. I pray to God that I would not lose faith, that I would still trust on. I keep, I, I've been praying that since I used to pastor here. Do you realize once 
off track. Don't worry about the slides. Do you realize once I even led a Bible study here at Thornhill Baptist as a youth pastor, Kevin, my middle son, was almost run over by my neighbor, and I literally said in the Bible study, I said, boy, you know, I, I, I'm so glad that another neighbor saw and got him out of the way, and I said, but I do wonder. I said, had I lost my son, how would I have responded? I think like that, because it happens. I got pulled aside and told, don't think like that. If you think like that, you just give permission for that to happen. I'm like, really? God's that weak? I said, so anytime anything bad happens, is it really just God? Did God choose for that plane to crash? And, and everyone goes, what a miracle, but what about the few that died? There's no miracle in their lives. And I'm sitting there going... I know what I'm getting at is can I know God and understand God and love God and trust God in light of things that happen and then life and then in light of all his truth and his promises? Do I put that much weight on what happens on this side of the grave versus the eternal promises after? See, you always got to weigh these things through, but you got to know your God, you got to know his promises. And so when this happens to Jillian, this is what I start to hear in our church. And I understand it. I, I could be the very same person doing the same thing if it happened to me. So I am not casting judgment, friends. But I'm starting to hear, she's not being healed, so what's the use of praying? Our youth are really going to be confused now about God because this was allowed to happen to someone they know. Funny, they weren't worried about the millions that starve and die every day around the world. We somehow can block that out or the ethnic cleansing that takes place or the atrocities in the Middle East to Christians. They, they say there's more Christians dying now under persecution than there are in biblical times. I don't see a lot of us walking around consumed about that and worried. But if it hits our world, if it hits my area, suddenly, oh, hold it, we're taking this personally. See, we've got, we've got to know and understand God in light of atrocities and horrific sins and choices that are bad and good. Not just when it hits your world. Now. Right now. Is God still God? Are his promises still valid? You know... He, he, comes to Joshua. and my, Hey, Joshua saw what Moses all went through with the people of Israel. They were just a pain in the neck. And he comes to him and he says, Oh, by the way, Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I'm going, well, that's a great promise. That's fantastic. That was a guarantee for Joshua to have just a clean slate, a road of ease, right? No. I think if you continue to read to the Old Testament, you'll just see the problems that arose with the people of Israel in the days of head. In fact, it's so interesting. I'm reading through that, and suddenly there he is, makes this promise, I'll be with you. And then in the next 10 verses, he comes back about five or six times, reiterating the same phrase. So, Joshua, I want you to say, oh, by the way, be strong and courageous. And Joshua, as you're going to go, oh, by the way, be very strong and courageous. And so we're going to go through that. And Joshua, let me remind you again, be strong and courageous. Why are you telling me that? Because we're going to have to be. Because the road's not going to be easy. The road is going to be difficult. 
God's promise was not a guarantee of this easy traveling road. It was a guarantee of him accompanying us along a difficult road. A road that has hope. Not that's just laid out for us on this side of the grave because we put so much. No, 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 no. Hope on the other side of the grave. The eternity that awaits us. And so he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For your Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Do we believe this? You know, people say, about, I, want, I want to grow spiritually. I, I, want, to, I want to move closer to God. We, we use terminology. Well, what does that mean? Here's how you do it. You want to begin to grow spiritually? Increase your capacity to experience this presence of God in your life. To live in that truth, in that promise given us, in every single moment that we are ever offered to breathe on this side of the grave, God says, take advantage of it, be in touch with me, keep me in light of everything you do from the smallest to the biggest decision, allow my presence to saturate your marriage, your life, your workplace, the things you do behind the scenes, the things you do when no one's around, it's got to saturate every part of us. Because if you don't, and hell breaks out on earth, what do they say on the t-shirts? Come hell or high river. (laughs) I'm saying it's going to happen. It's going to feel like that on this planet. If you really don't know your God or trust your God or his words, you're going to falter. We all do. The right now is all that we have. Sometimes we just got to get our heads out of the past And quit being consumed with the future like I was during that problem because all I could do at that moment was think about the repercussions of what I did and what that's going to cost me and how that's going to hurt and never mind how I'm going to look before others and pride and all of those things come sweeping in and God says, no, no, you've got this moment right now. What are you doing? I'm terrified, God. What are you doing? I'm fearful, God. What are you doing? I'm mad. What are you doing? I got to trust you. I can't be dismayed. I can't let fear reign. Because then what happens? We live like that and we carry it to everyone around us. You do it. (laughs) We all do it. And we turn on others. Because somehow God has turned on us. The right now is all we have. And we can't allow it to paralyze our present condition. God does not want us to live this way, nor should we. And so the question becomes, what are we doing now? What am I doing right now to enhance this opportunity to live with the faith of a Job? I want to know the God he knew. I want to really trust that God. And you can't help but see that people, there's a correlation between time spent on this planet with God and our understanding of God. And, and, and there's far too many people, even in the church, that we live off the faith of, of people around us, of our parents or someone else, and it never becomes our own. It, it's, it's just an imitation faith, and sometimes we even do it. We live off the faith of people around us, they worship in that, and then we leave church, and there's nothing different about our lives. It's not a faith. It's a copy. And God's given us this incredible gift. It's, it's the gift of the present. It's the gift of the right now. It's the gift of this moment, this opportunity to grow in my knowledge and understanding of God and to be surrounded with whomever. But yet we just don't get it sometimes. 
until we need God, until something drastic happens and we're shaken and then we turn to God. But I want to get to a place that I say, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I'm not sure I'm there. I just hope I can. We have a task and a responsibility to meet God in this moment, to fight this inner urge that resides in each and every one of us to live outside this moment, to fight this inner urge to simply live for myself. Thus, we live at the risk of never sensing God's presence because it's all about me. And then we're oblivious to what he has to offer. And I was sitting there going, well, how do you gauge that? How do you, how do you kind of find out where you're at at, at this po- moment? And, and again, as I'm a practical guy, I look around and I says, well, Glenn, how are you responding to the circumstances around you? This week was just another good little indicator. I'm not quite there. Or am I angry all the time? Am I fixated on anxiety and worry? Am am I just dissatisfied with everything and people and church and life? And and I really don't want to say God, even though sometimes that's what we're saying, but I don't want to say it. Am I just, am I bored? Am I distant? Am Am I disengaged with life? And people around me, do people flee from me? They don't even want to be around me. And a lot of times it's because with confidence I can't say, yet will I hope in him. And so we got to ask, am I living and walking this world with faith or with fear? God, are your promises full of, you know, hope? But yet the way I live, my performance is just full of fear. You know, it's something James tried to get people to understand as he wrote. He, he says, here, here's, here's how he put it. He says, do not merely listen to the word. He's probably tired of that. Everybody, oh, yeah, the word of God, quote it, memorize it. No, don't just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately goes, hmm, what did I look like? I don't even remember. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, the scriptures, the word of God that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has just heard, but doing it, he or she will be blessed. So don't just swear upon a Bible because you think somehow that's going to do it, but you don't even know what's in it. You don't know the author. You don't know anything about it. You just say, what a good thing. Swear about it. You bet I'll tell the truth. And then we lie. Oh, well. And we move on. See, he's talking about a life characterized, James says, in freedom. And we go, oh, what? Freedom from death? No. Uh, Freedom from pain? No. Freedom from difficulties? No. But a freedom from guilt? A freedom from loneliness? A freedom from despair? a freedom from anxiety, a freedom from confusion, a freedom from anger, where God says, I will give you, you're going to live characterized by a life of inner peace, a a soul-warming peace that humanity, as the scripture says, they can't even explain. A peace that has the ability to comfort even when our worst nightmares come true. See, I I was looking at this, I said, I, I call that deep theology. 
People say, oh, you want to go deep in the scriptures and you debate all these theological issues. And trust me, in the church, we know there's enough of them. Every time we turn around, there's something to debate and to argue and how we do it. I understand the need for these things. We need boundaries, yes. We need the ability to be in tune with God and, and try and stick to the best of our ability to the word of God. But we get so fixated and focused on that, we forget the, the principle that God's given us. That going deep with God doesn't mean that I can out-debate you in some, in some issue. It has nothing to do with, with my ability to memorize more scripture than you and, and somehow come across as, wow, look at me, that guy knows the word of God. And yet doesn't do anything in here. My wife hates water. Oh, she'll drink it. She loves it. Warm, by the way, it's kind of weird, but anyways... Throw her in a boat on the ocean, or throw her out of the boat in the ocean, uh, she will kill me. She never liked it. it Face, water in the face. Just pools. No, no. Here's what she can handle. A wading pool. Hot day. Feet in. That's not my wife, by the way. Okay. And, And that I can take. And I thought about that picture. In fact, someone was writing about it in a book, and I, I remember reading something along that lines, and, and I found it, and I said, what a great illustration. He alluded to it, and I just worked off of it. You know, I was thinking about the similarities to our spirituality and how people uh, believe, many people, when it comes to this whole thing of discovering God and the spiritual realm, sometimes I find we're, we're kind of fearful about going too deep, about exploring the spiritual depths. We're more fearful than we are excited. I I find people really afraid what they might discover about God. Some people just don't like accountability, and so I don't even want to go there. Don't talk to me because God represents accountability. And we're satisfied in our spirituality to go ankle deep. You know, just enough to feel good about ourselves, right? Just enough to present this image that, hey, I go to church. I've been there. I heard the guy ramble. On and on. I sing. I even read my Bible last week. Just ankle deep. And then we wonder why we don't understand when things begin to flood. Things begin to wash over us that we can't control. And we wonder why we don't understand where God is. And we feel unequipped or afraid or overwhelmed when it comes to living deep with God because I don't fully understand him. So what did Jesus tell us? He says, let me give you another picture. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, he who abides in me, I in him. What happens? Bears fruit. For without me you can do nothing. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. So abide in my love. It's a fantastic picture. You know, we see some impressive trees these day and age. You know, some of us feel like we're an impressive tree. We're massive. We're powerful. We're huge in this world. Things are going our way. Problem is, there's no fruit. Things are going wrong inside. In the depths of our humanity, at the soul level, we're fruitless. 
You know, it's just our whole society. How do we measure success? Everything is measured by standards, right? Oh, look at that baby. Oh, 25 inches. That's a big baby. Oh, 42-pound birth. I know it never happened, but you go, wow! Right? And the second we're born, we're measured. And then everything, school, grades, classes, you name it. What do you drive? What do you have? What do you owe? Everything, life, our whole life is measured by these tangible, physical things that somehow give us. What do you, ooh, wait. You know, I got, I got a cheap bike from a girl who decided to go into a, a man's bike now. So I got her bike. And I'm driving along. And people, oh, you got a bike. What do you got? Right? And if I can't say Harley Davidson, 1900 CC, well... You're not a biker. You're a wannabe. Right? Everything we do, we measure. And then we judge. You know, the last four weeks I went to church, some of you are going to really hate me for this. Okay? My mom would, so I'm okay. (laughs) I go to church, unless I'm speaking, I will wear jeans and a nice shirt. Now, some jeans nowadays cost more than most of my suits. I don't know why, but they do. It's crazy. So I don't cast too quick a judgment on people because they probably paid a lot more than what I paid to wear to church. And and, and the last four Sundays or so, it's just different people but just made little comments to me as I walked in and, and about my shoes, about my dress, about this, about that. Oh, you must be preaching today because you're not dressed up. Oh, ooh, ouch. So I know what they're saying about the pastors. And I understand some of that. And I know the whole respect thing. But I'm going, really? Is this what this boils down to? You're going to make a call on what I wear and that somehow that's the beginning of the conversation? And that's, you're going to make a call on my relationship with God maybe? I go, is that what we've come down to? People, we're hurting. We're all hurting. And it doesn't help that our culture is driven by productivity. I am swept in that. My dad gave such a crazy work ethic. I know it's sin what I do. I just know it, but I'm driven because that's why everyone measures by that. I've got to perform. There's the tangible things that people got to see, and yet not one of us comes up and says, hey, how's your soul doing today? How's your walk with God doing today? How can I pray for you that you're closer to God I don't care what you're wearing. I hope you're wearing something, but no. <laughs> then I might be concerned. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been farming with my brother, and I'm going to wrap this up. I didn't realize it was communion, so I cut my sermon in half. <laughs> You'll get the next half next week, okay? I've been helping my brother-in-law farm the last couple of years. I'm a farmer. It was only a couple of days each summer, but I got to drive the half-million-dollar machines. See, I'm measuring tangible. Woo! Big things. They got all brand new John Deere this year. Millions. Anyways. And I'm just observing the farmers. And I've cultivated wrong fields, by the way. I've already done that. They all look the same to me. And so I'm looking. I'm going, you know what? As I, as I look around, the farmers, you know, I know they work hard. But they don't actually make anything. So they don't produce the corn or the canola or the wheat. In fact, it's not even their job. They're responsible to cultivate the right environment for growth. 
And so they're responsible to, to partner with nature and water and the sun and the seeds and, and all the soils and what they have to do to prep it. And they, they prepare a place for this to grow, but they don't grow it. See, we're not the ones that produce growth spiritually in our lives. It just doesn't happen because I show up on Sunday and I've performed for God and I'm here four weeks in a row. It's not about what I do. It's about what I cultivate inside the depth of my soul. It's about that inner world. What am I doing to allow God and the Holy Spirit to get in there and to begin to make a move first in my own life? And convictions that I listen to them, that you're being an idiot, Glenn, you're being prideful, you're being this, that, or the other, and allow God to work at it. And then I just provide him room and his presence to be there. And I'm in his word, and, and I'm praying, and I'm trusting him, and I'm mad at him, and I'm angry, but I'm not giving up. And, and I'm talking about him, and I'm just, I'm just allowing that environment so that I can grow, so that he can be present. And I know he's there. And then it's reflected in my life. And so I'm not snapping at my family because I'm irritated with life and people and, and everything else and angry and all these things. No, 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 no. I may be angry, but I know God could be more angry at me. And so who's leading this with me? I'm going to call you guys up right now as we come to communion. Because what a great place to move. In there. There's a segue right in there. And I'm, I'm sitting there going... Oh, my goodness. I know sometimes we just don't get it. I don't want to put you in the boat. I don't get it. And I have to be reminded time after time after time after time that I'm told in the, in the scriptures that God came with us, came to us, came amongst us. And he said, here's what you got to do. I think first, you have to get over yourself. This is not about you. That's what we're kind of look at next week. This is not about you and your way and what you want to get all the time out. This is about God and serving. This is about God and giving. You know, I read Haggai this morning. <laughs> I, I'm one of these guys, I know. I just sometimes do the open the Bible and see what God has to say to me. Uh, I don't know why, I just like to do that. And, and I opened up the Haggai today, and my very first thought was, well, what am I going to get out of Haggai? And I think, well, I almost tempted to do it again. And I, I said, no, oh, no, I'll read it. I'll just read it. Now I know why I was to read it. I thought, what a great fit. I know it's communion, but I think this is, this is it. And I'm reading Haggai, and you've got to understand what's happening here is, it's no different than I think what's happening in, in our culture today, this post-Christian culture we live in, where most people really don't care what you think about God and that, and we try all that we can to invite them and bring them to church and do this and perform this, and somehow we're going to compete with Hollywood and do something better. No, no, no. That's not just going to cut it. See, they, they got to see something more than just a performance, right? They got to see way a lot more than just a performance in a church. They got to see lives changed. Lives that are just saturated with the love of God. And I'm looking and it wasn't happening in Haggai's day. And here's what was happening. You know, he's talking. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. I, I, 
you know, we know in the Old Testament it was a little different than the New Testament. Pentecost came, Holy Spirit came. We are the temple of God. He dwells in us. We, you know, we, we understand that. In the Old Testament it wasn't like that. And so visually it was very important. The house of God, the tabernacle, the temple, God's glory, his Shekinah, all this stuff was very important. And the people of his time said, oh, there's the house of God. Don't worry about it right now. And it left it in ruins. Which is what? Very representative of what they're doing with their lives with God. We really don't have time for God right now. And so he says, the Lord says, these people say the time has not yet come. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? I guess that was good. I can't even tell you what paneled houses means, but it must have been good. While this house remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought. This is communion, right? We take time. We come before God. We give some thought. He says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat. No problem. Things are being there, supplied. But what does he say? But you never have enough. You drink, but somehow you're never filled. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You know, all I could think of is all those kids in high school, right? Freezing winter. Oh, I wanted to see the neat shirt I got, the brand name, so I'm not going to wear a coat. That'd be stupid. Cover up, I'll freeze to death. But look what I'm wearing, right? Who cares about what the, its use is for? We just want to show what you're wearing. I went, maybe they did it back then. Certain sheepskin that others didn't have. Who knows? You know? And he says, you earn wages. I love this. Hits you. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Boy, do we know that one. Okay, sorry. Do I know that one? I'm thinking some of you do. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with his own house. It happens. Each and every one of us. It just happens. Life becomes my house. My issues. My problems. My life. Jesus came. <laughs> and even the disciples prior to the communion are what? Fighting at who's going to be sitting at the right hand of God. Oh my goodness. They walked with him for three years. Did they not get it? I'm not feeling quite as bad. But I am feeling bad. It's not about power. It's not about possessions. It's not about performance. It's about your heart. It's about your soul. It's about who you are really as a human being. And if God is not present there, it's trouble. And so he invites us to come and share in what he did. A sacrifice. Gave of his life. Gave. He was God. 
Let's not forget that. He was God, and he stepped down into humanity, became one of us so that he could. And even before the disciples, he says, guys, can I show you one more time? Let me wash your feet. Let me, let me just show you what it's like to serve. And if you can't even do that, we have a problem. Never mind Houston, Calgary. Never mind Calgary, Glenn. We have got to get it right. We have got to allow God to so saturate our hearts and our souls and our lives that we get over ourselves and we start living the way God intends and we won't have to worry about inviting people to church. They will watch us. They will see us and they will want that type of life and presence because they don't understand that it's God. That's what's got to happen. Who would like to pray for the bread as we... Lord God, we acknowledge you this morning as sovereign. And I thank you for the words that um, Glenn has shared with us, the reminder that you are with us, that your spirit dwells within us, and that we don't need to be afraid. And, uh, and the conviction that comes with us, that even though you're with us, how often am I reaping fruit? How often am, am I living out your scripture, your gospel. Uh, I know in my own life I serve myself so much more than I should because I should be taking all that effort in serving you and I, I know it. I, it doesn't feel good to say it but I see it in the church too. We, we are self-serving in many ways even with good intentions um, trying to do all this for you but we somehow comes back to performance or doing church. God, we know that 